Turn with me to Acts chapter 23, please. It's always a privilege to study the word together and to seek to steer you through the text in a way that will be profitable to us in the week to come. We're going to read our text together and then study Acts chapter 23. Really, our key verse is verse 11. We'll read it, and then the rest of the story, which unfolds the essence of that verse. So beginning in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, remembering God himself has given and preserved these words for us and wants our hearts to bask in them this morning. Paul has been taken back to the prison of the Romans after his efforts to convince the Sanhedrin of his purpose and his mission. That didn't go well. They were angry coming after him, and so the Romans have taken him into safety, and then we pick up the account in this way. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. 
This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that it was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This story before us this morning reveals God at work, as we would say, behind the scenes. We call it providence. Not a word we use much. The church used to use bigger words like that more often. Maybe as time has gone by, we're not as smart or maybe not as intentional in our clarity of words. So providence used to be a a big theme in in the church. That's why when the church came over with the colonists, we have a place called Providence up there in New England. Uh, They loved the word, and we should too. But we don't often hear it. Its last public use in America, I think, was the writing of the Declaration of Independence. When men pledged their support, you remember, their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor, And that pledge, as was written, was with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. I mentioned the Declaration of Independence because they cited divine providence as a practical means by which they could go about making real-life decisions that could be important and even costly. What is this dramatic language of providence? We may tend to think of it as similar to sovereignty, another big word. But I think we would be right to distinguish the two. Sovereignty tends to speak to one's right to rule and one's power to back it up. They are sovereign. They kind of exist, but sovereignty lacks the clear statement of purpose. It's kind of a definition of what is, not of what needs to happen. So a king can be sovereign. He could have absolute authority and power. When we add the element of providence now, we are adding this idea of purpose. It takes the right and the power, and it exercises these virtues, these elements, for the good of someone or something. 
So a sovereign ruler could act providentially by using his power and his right to rule for the welfare of his people. Think of the shorter word that's hidden there in the word providence. It's the word provide. And it helps us remember a definition of providence that God provides whatever is needed to accomplish his good plan. We might say then that providence is sovereignty in benevolent motion. It's the sovereignty of God in action for the good of his people. It's going somewhere. It's doing something. Or as Paul would say, it's working all things together for good. And though today can't be a comprehensive study of the word providence, I think we can at least nail down our theme, which is that you can know and then rest in the providence of God. This story in Acts 23 may not be real familiar to us. Kind of gets lost in this series of confessions before councils and governors. But it's a fascinating story that illustrates the theme of verse 11, that God stands by Paul and has a purpose for the gospel and for Paul's life. So we... Begin at verse 11, but really follow this whole story as, as an illustration, as a, as a living drama that fleshes out for us the sovereignty of God at work for the good of his people. It's a fun story. It has its elements that make for good drama. There's this misguided zeal, but it is zeal, make no mistake. A kind of zeal that would take an oath and say, we're not going to eat or drink anything until we accomplish our mission, which is to kill Paul. Imagine what the Romans must have thought about the Jewish religion. Having seen these squabbles in the council and now hearing that these Jews would kill anybody that thinks something different than them. But that's what we have. These zealous oaths are taken. This conspiracy is hatched in these secret meetings. And then there's the cooperation with those who are in power as they come to the council and, and invite them into this plot. And then the story takes this odd turn where we hear of a nephew, a nephew we never knew about, because we never heard anything about a sister of Paul's. Frankly, we've heard very little about Paul's family. And now it's introduced to us in this dramatic way that a nephew overhears a plot. He goes and tells Paul, which was perfectly normal. Historically, we know that when you were kept in these prisons, nobody was going to feed you or clothe you or care for you, so your family would come regularly and provide what was needed. So he tells Paul, and Paul apparently still has some kind of camaraderie with his Roman guards, and they comply with his request to let this young man go and tell his story to the boss. We speculate that he was probably 
younger than a young adult because of this unique phrase where the tribune in verse 19 takes him by the hand and leads him aside. It just, it sounds more of something that would be done to a a young youngster, you know, someone we would think of as still junior high age or something. Whoever it was and whatever age he was, it makes for a great story of foiling this evil plot by exposing it to those who are able to deal with it. These historical facts that unfold in the telling of the story clearly imply that God is in control. Paul is in no real danger. God is in control of all the details, of all the people involved in all the places. And so our task this morning is to look at the story and try to articulate what we mean when we say things like, God is in control of all of the details. Because that's what we see. That's not hard to figure out when you start piecing together the plot and how it's overheard and how the Romans defeat the plot by getting Paul out of there and declare his innocence. And Okay, God's accomplishing all this plan for Paul. He's in control of all the details, but what do we mean when we say that? We're speaking of God's providence. What is that? So I want to offer you seven elements of God's providence. Seven, seven lines of truth here. Seven tries at explaining what do we mean when we say God is in control of all things. Because we do say that, and we should say that. What are we saying when we tell someone God is in control? Number one, at the very least, we mean God has a plan. God has a plan. We heard it in verse 11. As the Lord stands by Paul in some clear manifestation of his presence and says, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God has a plan for the gospel to keep spreading. Whether his followers are imprisoned, whether they're executed, whether they're scattered throughout the world, Whatever it is, God has a plan for the kingdom to advance. That's not new to us. We heard Jesus say earlier in Matthew that he was going to build his church and it was going to assault the kingdom of darkness. So we know God has a plan, but also we see that while God has a plan in that big picture for the church, for the kingdom of God, in that plan are the details of how he uses your life in that plan. And so he tells Paul, you have more to do in this plan of mine. And the plan is not, oh, how do I make Paul's life successful? No, the plan is, how does the kingdom advance? Ultimately, to be given over to God in that glorious coronation that's unfolded in Revelation for us. Secondary to that plan, the gospel's advance for the glory of God and the making of his name known is the details of your life. Your life fits into God's plan. All of that's in verse 11. The plan for the gospel, but that's going to involve the people of God. Paul, 
Barnabas, Silas, followers of Jesus Christ all through the ages that we could better name by pulling out the church directory and looking around the room and realizing, wait a minute, even in just this room we have a sampling, God accomplishing his kingdom work through people like you and me. God has a plan. But note the contrast in our text to highlight the reality that providence speaks to God's plan. There's a contrast of plots or plans. We kind of get a glimpse of God's plan in verse 11, but then we hear of another plan. Forty Jewish men devise an evil plan to hinder the gospel, to harm the church to take out this voice of Paul's witness. But the evil plan is thwarted by God's providential plan. There's something about plans and plots that are steering us to an understanding of God's providence. You've heard the expression, the best laid plans of mice and men from an old writer. When we say that, when we introduce that into a conversation, we're hinting towards providence. We're saying Proverbs was right when it says we try to make our plans and and order our steps, but ultimately God is doing that. Remember when you hear providence or remember this week when you need the reality of the providence of God. Remember that it means in part God has a plan. That's where our understanding of providence begins. And remember this, the basis of our hope, the basis of our peace in moving through this coming week is the fact that God has a plan. It's not your understanding or knowledge of it. It's the fact that he has a plan. God is in control. You might not see it. You might not know how it's working out. But you don't have to know the plan, nor do you have to understand it. You must believe that God has a plan. Secondly, God is faithful to his promises. God had told Paul that he was going to get the gospel to Rome. It looked like the Jews were going to interrupt that plan But the story unfolds to remind us, no, if God said it, it's going to happen. He is faithful to his promises. And then we read our story and we see how God provides for Paul to have the opportunity to take the gospel to kings, even in Rome. But again... It's the details of our story. It's the narrative that is steering us toward providence by reminding us that God keeps his promises. You see, in our story, in order to highlight the promise-keeping ability of God, we have the promise-keeping ability of these men and their evil plot falling flat on their face. They can't keep their promise. Oh, they had every intention of doing it. They zealously took the oath and promised with an oath, this is what we will do. But they didn't know that God had at his disposal 
all these tools and all these elements of the story that would keep them from accomplishing their goal. You see, they made an oath, verse 12, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Verse 13, this conspiracy. Verse 14, we are strictly bound ourselves by an oath. We promise. And the promises of men are contrasted to the promise of God. And only one of them comes out victorious in the story. So it's yet another element that's shaping our understanding of divine providence. It's not just some highfalutin kind of word. It's the reality of provide. But what is God providing for? God has a plan and he works that plan because he is faithful to his promises. And God's promise in this story stands in contrast to the promises made by those 40 Jewish men. The difference being not only the moral rightness of God's plan, but also his power to carry it out. Their plan was thwarted by Paul's nephew. Forty zealous men, willing to risk their lives. Roman soldiers were going to escort Paul down to the Sanhedrin, and they were going to attack that whole escort. And hopefully one of them would be able to sneak through as perhaps others are being killed by the Roman guards, sneak through and get to Paul with a dagger and finish him off. These men are committed. But they did not have the ability to keep their promise. And then the text reminds us that God has no problem keeping his promise. Paul will make it to Rome. We add to our understanding of providence with number three that God is with us on our pilgrim journey. The text is careful to point out that the Lord stood by Paul in verse 11. And the words that are spoken next flesh out what it means for the Lord to stand by him. The first words from the Lord to Paul are, take courage. Take courage. That's the point of God's presence. God is with us, so we take courage. We should not be surprised that the text says the Lord stood by him. I think it is a special manifestation of God's presence in this scenario. But even if God hadn't made some special manifestation of his presence, the truth would remain that God stood by him. How do we know that? Because Jesus said in that commission that he gave his disciples to go and make his name known to all the nations, he said, and remember this, I am with you always. So Paul knew that. He didn't need the Lord to stand by him and say, I'm with you, take courage. Paul knew that the Lord was always with him. So this is just an extra measure of kindness of the Lord to visit a discouraged saint and kind of prop him up for the rest of his work to be done. But you don't need God to appear to you in a dream this week. You can go to Matthew 28 and remember that I'm called to be a witness in my neighborhood, in my book club, in the workplace, in whatever place God takes you this week, and his promise is, I'm with you. 
He is providing. Divine providence is at work. He goes with you. And we hear that over and over again in Scripture. We're studying Hebrews in the equip hour. And when you get to the end of that book, we're reminded, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that presence of God is never passive. He's never like hanging out somewhere and you have to remember, oh, he's there. No, he's always out front. His presence is a domineering presence. The presence of God is often associated with his name, Lord of hosts, Lord of angel armies. I've been reading about the Civil War lately. So much for my resolution to get to bed earlier. I get into one of these battles and I got to see what happens. And, and what you often saw in that great battle was the sheer numbers of the northern army. Some of the southern generals may have been a little better, but in the end, reinforcements would arrive and they'd come sweeping in. They'd, they'd cover one of the flanks or they'd fill a hole in the middle of the lines and it would win the day. And oftentimes there was great celebration when, when they heard of so-and-so's troops showing up. Well, when God says, take heart, I am with you, it's God and all the power of his angel armies ready to act on behalf of his church, on behalf of his people, on behalf of you as you seek to make him look good, whether that's to your toddler in discipline or your coworker in evangelistic outreach, God is with you. You can do this. Paul's task was, you've got more witnessing to do. You've got all of the Roman hierarchy to reach. And so you have your marching orders. God is with you and he's telling you the same thing. I have more witnessing for you to do. So take heart. God is acting on your behalf. He is with you on your pilgrim journey. This promise of God to never leave us forces us to reckon with how we value the language of God's presence. How we value that. Do we long for it like the psalmist would? Do we have those times where we feel distant and we have to close that gap? We're desperate to be close again. Do we value the presence of God? He wants to provide that nearness for us. This is understanding his fatherly care, his kindness, his good plan, his providence. Number four, God knows all things. Our text unfolds this story of secretive oaths, secretive conspiracies. We have to make this work. Here's how it will happen. But what they failed to remember was the teaching of the Old Testament that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. We haven't even learned this lesson well. We still think nobody will know. Nobody will find out. I'll erase my computer's history. Certainly this won't get back to the boss. 
We have all these thoughts that somehow our, our sin against God is, is hidden because nobody else that we know of is aware of it. And yet scriptures are saying the eyes of the Lord are in every place. He sees everything. Again in Hebrews, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Both of those words, naked and exposed, kind of just make us shrink when we hear them in public because they so well capture what we are afraid of, being fully known and thus critiqued and judged. The reality is nothing is hidden from God. God knows all things. And this account reminds us of the story of Esther. You remember Mordecai overheard a plot to assassinate the king and he makes it known. The plot is foiled and it's recorded that he was the agent of rescue and and that factors into the story down the line. Similar tale here as we have a nephew who overhears this plot and makes it known. It's a reminder not in blatant language. It doesn't say, and God saw the evil plot and made it known to the nephew. It's just a story. But in the story, we, we see in those details the truth that God knows all things. Part of our understanding of God's providence is understanding this comprehensive knowledge. Not just facts, we're told in Scripture, but intents of the heart and the thoughts we're thinking before we say the words, God knows. Providence steers us to a God who is never surprised, never caught off guard, always in control. Well, now we get to the heart of the matter in number five. God accomplishes his will, sometimes through very unique ways. Again, does our story ever have a verse where we could underline this great truth? God accomplishes his will. No. But that's the beauty of narrative. We can, we can immerse ourselves in the story and see what is God doing here? What is he teaching us? And what we see is God accomplishing his will. He told Paul, I have... More for you to do. You're going to testify in Rome. And what we see in the story is not the Jews thwarting that plan, but rather God accomplishing his plan through unique ways. I'm sure you could ride all the way home quizzing each other about unique ways that God has accomplished his will in the stories of the Bible. God's used a raven, a whole flock of them, I suppose, to feed a prophet. That's kind of bizarre. You know, at other times, he just made very little, the oil, the oil in the widow's little vase or the five loaves and two fish, and he fed all kinds of people. In that case, he just had the birds bring the food. He used a donkey to rebuke one of Israel's enemies. Well, I'm sure a prophet would have stood in that gap, but God used a donkey to accomplish his will. He used a great fish to redirect a wayward prophet, Pretty unusual, pretty unique. 
But God accomplishes his will. It just sometimes sits in unique ways that just really catch our eye. They really stand out. We might even call them miraculous. He used an angel to deliver the apostle Peter earlier in the book of Acts. But then in the three chapters later, it's shaking the earth in an earthquake that breaks the prison open and Paul and Silas are free. In our story, God uses loose lips. Some of you are probably old enough to remember the expression, wartime uh, expression there of loose lips sinking ships. The plot was uncovered because someone was talking too much and the nephew heard it. So we have loose lips, a wandering nephew that we would say was at the right place at the right time. That's just kind of stripped down language for divine providence. So you can say right place at the right time, but it would be really good if in your head you were thinking because God ordains places and times and nephews. And then God uses 470 Romans, 200 foot soldiers, 70 cavalry, and 200 more marksmen, we might say, the spearsmen, the ones who are really good at taking people out with a spear or a javelin. 470 to to escort one prisoner by night across northern Israel. It's just the means that God chose to use. So whether it's a donkey of old or the might of the Roman Empire, God accomplishes his will, but in unique ways. Ephesians 1 tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. We don't often refer to ourselves as taking counsel with ourselves. Could get you in trouble, probably. If you say, I need to consult with myself, and you step into another room and make a decision and come back out to your boss or something. But God, in in all of his perfection, calls that counsel, the counsel of his plan, what he speaks what he ordains, we might say. And Ephesians says all things are under that plan, that providence. Charles Spurgeon's known for saying a lot of things, but this particular topic of providence, he is well known for saying this, quote, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move more or less than God wishes. That's a great image for our mind's eye, especially if you've done any dusting lately. So everybody go home, find where the sun's coming in the window, right, and shake a throw pillow or a blanket or something. I dare you to hit your couch really hard. (laughs) And you'll see all those particles in that sunbeam. And Spurgeon, his eye must have caught that in some afternoon in the study or some walk and realized if all things are under the counsel of God's will, then those particles of dust aren't moving on their own outside of God's ordained plan. It just helps us begin to think, not even grasp, 
but to think of the comprehensive nature of a sovereign God with the right and the power to rule and now exercising that right and power for the good of his people. God accomplishes his will, sometimes through unique ways. I close with two musts. Really, the last two points are are the application. We've, We've made some observations. Now, what do we do with these thoughts of providence? The first one's negative, a must not, and the second a positive. Number six, then, we must not define providence solely by our comfort or solely by our standard of good. You see, here in our text, God thwarts the enemies of Paul. It's a great story. How disappointed they must have been when they woke up the next morning, not realizing that 470 Romans had escorted Paul away in the night. The third hour, so 6 o'clock started the Roman evening. Three hours later, 9 o'clock, they're heading out. This massive entourage guarding one old man on a horse. And there will be no attempt to kill Paul by the Jews. God thwarted the plan. That story and others like it, Daniel in the lion's den, David facing Goliath, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. We have all these stories that we think there's there's providence, case in point. And if we're not careful, our tendency is to associate providence with security, provision, safety, health, overall wellness. Think of it this way. You're driving home in wintry weather when you hit a patch of ice. You spin around once in your car and you come to a stop just six inches from the guardrail. If you've ever done anything even close to that, you know there's that moment where the adrenaline just has to drain away. Let go of the steering wheel, relax. Now you drive home. And likely you would recount that story to family and friends in the coming week with language like, God was really looking out for us. Or talk about divine providence that we heard about on Sunday. But what if you're driving home in wintry weather when you hit a patch of ice, you spin around once and come to a jolting stop as the side of your car slams into the guardrail, taking out the front headlight, front fender, passenger door, back fender, shattering the windshield, and now your paid-off car that was running well is totaled in a, in a really minor accident. You rarely hear someone say, well, God doesn't always protect us. Nor would they say, God made sure that we did not have that extra two feet to stop before we hit the guardrail. Nobody articulates negative providence. Because our tendency is to celebrate God and his control and his good plan when everything is going good. There is a popular expression these days that isn't wrong on its face. But it may lead us down a path of wrong thinking about providence. And I almost hesitated to bring this up because I, any of us may have said it, and I am not 
being critical or judgmental. On its face, you are right to say this expression, just beware of the pitfall that may come with it. The expression is, it was a God thing. All right? It was a God thing. People use this expression for a really engaging story of how they saw God's hand in some situation. That's why I'm saying it's not a bad thing to say. It's a God thing. Because something really stood out and it caught your eye that God was at work in that. Stopping six inches from the guardrail will catch your attention and you realize how bad that could have been. Wow. So that's right to say that, but we have to also understand that in order to have a deeper appreciation of God's providence, we would do well to ask the question, what is there that is not a God thing? If all things are brought under the counsel of his will. If nothing else, it will force us in the moments when the fender bender happens instead of the near miss, we can immediately come back to the truth that yes, God is in control and in his power and in his authority to rule for my good, somehow he allowed this to happen and I'll trust him. That leads us to our final must, the positive one. We must trust God to work all things for his glory and for our good. Now that, that's pushing the limit of Christian cliche that God does all things for his glory and for our good. And both of them could, could find enormous support in scripture and we could study those in depth. But in our story, I just want us to see the simple statement of this last principle that we have to trust God to work all things for his glory. In this story, it's, it's one of his servants, hassled by the Jews, rescued by Romans. But we know the end of the story. The Romans eventually get weary of this and they execute Paul. But God was at work for his glory. The name of Jesus is going to be made more known because of Paul's captivity by the Romans. And it's going to reach places that other Christians wouldn't be able to reach. God was working this for his glory and for Paul's good. You say, but what is good about an old tired saint being decapitated by a Roman sword? I don't have a good answer for that. Frankly, that's history. You start asking me about the losses in your family and the hardships you've suffered... And I can't stand in the place of God and say, well, this is why that happened, because God was doing this, which was going to affect that, which was going to bring about this, which was going to help you do that. I can't do that. And frankly, that works against what the Bible is telling us, that this Christian life is a life of faith, where we trust that God is working it for our good, even when it hurts even when it exhausts us, even when it frustrates us and we're left thinking, why is this happening? We must trust God to work all things for his glory and for our good. You don't have to understand how. How is God glorified? How is this good? But faith isn't about understanding, it's about trusting. 
So do you trust God's words to you? When you look at the pages of Scripture, it's as if God's looking you in the face and saying, I will work everything you're going through right now for your good and for my glory. Will you hear those words and trust them? Will you trust the one saying those words to you? My friends, we can't know the future. But understanding divine providence relieves us of the burden of wondering what's next. How is this going to work out? What if this happens? Sovereign God, with his right and his power to rule, is providing. That's providence. We can trust him. We trust the one who ordains the future. Even if he doesn't reveal it to us. The old gospel song says, I don't worry about the future. For I know what Jesus said. Today, I'll just walk beside him. For I know what he knows what lies ahead. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow. And I know who holds my hand. It's a simple statement of providence. I don't know, God does. I can't control, God does. And that's not just about God being mighty and powerful and all-knowing and omnipresent and all these big things that God is. It's the reality, providence is, that all of that big stuff is for me, for my benefit, for my good. God will provide what is needed. For the Christian, we understand this is the essence of the gospel. Abraham hiked up a mountain to make a sacrifice, and his son was smart enough to ask the question, where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? And the answer came in the form of one of God's names, Jehovah Jireh. God will provide himself a lamb. Providence is the all-powerful one providing for those who cannot help themselves. That's the gospel, but it's the rest of our Christian life as well. So what is, it, what is it that seems so daunting to you? Is it that family member? Is it the financial constraint? Is it the stage of life with little ones? Or the hardship of seeing them all grow up and move on and the aloneness? What is it this week that will press and constrain and cause fear? All of that is met with this big, old-fashioned concept, divine providence. But it's not so old-fashioned after all. If we'll just remember, providence shortened is provide. God is able and willing to provide everything that will bring him glory, and that will work for our good. Take heart this week. The God who has all authority and power acts on your behalf. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Anchor us by it. Encourage the one who came already burdened down and prepare others who will face heavy burdens in this coming week.
Lead us to deeper faith that you are able, that you are willing. If you spared not your own son, but gave him up for us, how is it that we could doubt that you would do good things for us? We praise you as the God who is for us. We rest in this. And now carry us through this week ahead, should you tarry, with a confidence that you will provide all that we need. We rest in your promises to us, even as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.